For any good reviews to show my gratitude, Glenn and I will come over and, and paint the trim on your house. And the legal department says, I have to say, I'm just kidding. But anyway, I would appreciate it. So I'm super excited today to be joined by Glenn Phillips. And if you're not familiar with Glenn's work, he is a founding member of vocalist and musician in Toe the Wet Sprocket. Glenn is also one of my favorite songwriters and has an incredible body of work as a solo artist and has lots of other musical endeavors like the Mutual Admiration Society, Works Progress Administration. And we're gonna be playing a beautiful song from Glenn's latest solo album here in a bit. I've been listening to Glenn's music for over 30 years now and music that is very special to me personally has been in my listening rotation since the early 90s. So Glenn, it's, it's really great to have you here. Welcome to Journey to the Stage. Thank you, good to be here. Yeah, how are you doing these days? Um, getting by and I'm doing well, actually. Life is kind of, I, I had about a, a 10 year uh, post-divorce wobbly period, which was very exciting and interesting, but uh, kind of on the other end of that now and starting to kind of normalize uh, just having a new home and new yeah. partner and new life. And it's been quite lovely to acclimate to that beautiful <laughs> took well, me a while it took me a while yeah and then you went through the whole uh thing you know with that table breaking under you and the glass and the injury and like you've you had a stretch where that was that must have been a rough stretch yeah but i mean i think life is ultimately you know it's rough stretches and then spaces mm -hmm. in between i think the thing i realized more and more especially i think after i did a bunch of live casts uh during lockdown and this community kind of formed around that and so i know a lot more about what's going on with some of the audience and it's mm -hmm. it's weird to sit there and play for an audience there was this one show where i realized like there was one person who just lost their parents in the front wow. another who was battling cancer another who i think a sibling had just died another whose father had died another who's and I was thinking, okay, this is the trauma load, of, you know, or maybe not, maybe not trauma load, but the the active grief of the people yeah. in the audience. Mm -hmm. And it's only because I know, right. which means that every audience I've ever played in front of, mm -hmm. like someone is sick, someone's just been diagnosed, someone has just lost someone, and that that's been a constant from the beginning, and a little more, I think, as we get older, mm -hmm. but to realize it's like the hard stretch or this or that, like everyone's carrying something. Absolutely yeah. everyone is carrying something. And I think in, in modern society, we carry these things alone most of the time. We're encouraged mm -hmm. to kind of carry them alone and silently. And yeah. 
it's so much better if we, you know, uh, there's this teacher I know who talks about, you know, and stuff. everyone always says, hold it together. But what if we mm -hmm. held it together? So <laughs> um, in any event, yeah, I, I, there were there were some difficult years, but I also yeah. think, you know, it's odd because on the one hand, you want to acknowledge that you've overcome some adversity or had some challenges or been through a rough spot. And on the other hand, I think as a writer or a performer, it's like more, it's less my job to, and I, I guess I'm reacting to my past because I feel like I, I have had a tendency to uh, act like a victim mm. and I have a very fortunate life. Uh, and I am trying to really not cast myself as a victim and, and yeah. come out with more gratitude. Just the more, the more real conversations I have with people about what's actually going on in their life. Like yeah. once they're done with the small talk, what's really going on, everybody's got something heavy. Everybody's yeah. chewing on something big. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, telling my story, if it helps other people be more open about theirs, I think it's useful. But if it's just me talking about my hard times, I, I get bored quickly now, which is probably some kind of growth. <laughs> well, I think that's beautiful. And I, I really appreciate you sharing that. And, you know, I wonder if, um, you know, 20 something year old Glenn would have, you know, touring the world would have thought of those things. And I think you're right, probably those life experiences. And I think perspective we get when we get older, you and I, I'm, I'm, I think I'm about six months older than you. I think our perspective does change quite a bit, especially once we've wrestled with our own um, fallibility, our own, you know, difficulties in life. So I, I can really appreciate what you shared. Yeah. yeah it's, I mean, 20 year old me uh, was a little more solipsistic. I don't know. I mean, you know, it's, I, I, I feel you get older and I mean, well, maybe you don't, but hopefully you open up a little and start realizing that everyone else is also a real human being. One of the things that I learned about you as I was doing my research is that you're a Rush fan. And um, you clicked up like eight levels in my coolness book because I'm a huge <laughs> Rush fan myself. <laughs> I love Rush. I miss Rush. Um, I, yeah. I wish they would have been able to tour a little bit longer because my sons were just a little bit too young to take to a concert. I would have loved them to see Rush live because you probably have seen them and there's, I mean, I never did. Well, yeah, you probably were out on the road yourself. I was fortunate to see their second to last show. They were, they were a great band. I, and I'm not as much of a, um, a current Rush fan. They were mm -hmm. incredibly instrumental in my formative years. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've said it before. Neil, you know, Neil Pert taught me how to listen to lyrics, yeah. how to pay attention to a narrative in a song. Uh, you know, I'd come from disco before I got into Rush. I, I think I did the the kind of typical middle school kid, like deciding that disco wasn't cool anymore. <laughs> I feel was a, is a tragedy because it's amazing musically. Mm -hmm. The grooves and the arrangements are phenomenal. Yeah. The playing is fantastic, but it's not a great lyrical format. Disco will never never be remembered for its right. subtle poetry. It is true, uh, <laughs> and 
And Neil Pert, maybe, maybe not. I mean, uh, you know, Ayn Rand hasn't worn very well over the years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> he did go through least. that period. Yeah, he yeah. did go through that period, which can't be forgotten. But if I forgive him that, you know, once again, just his intelligence and his insight and that, that band totally changed what I thought music was capable of doing. You know, that's really cool. And it's interesting you talk about him as a lyricist. Of course, he's just yeah incredible. But I would say the same of you. I, I find you're, you're actually one of my favorite lyricists and find you often Thank to you. be very poetic. And uh, even today, as I was driving back, I was listening to The Sound of Drinking and you use a phrase, um, the movement of the moon. I have to get ahead of myself, but I'm like, that is just... That to me brought me to Paul. That sounds like something Paul Simon would write even, um, <laughs> which I don't know. It's just a really cool phrase. The movement of the moon. It's just a, it's a simple phrase, but it's beautiful too. I just think even those few words can really be evocative. I just really, really appreciate that. Thank you. I was looking at this record and, and some of the songs, because these were all written for this, you know, songwriting game that I play that I'm involved in with Matt, the electrician and a bunch of other mm. songwriters, right? All the songs are written from the title every week there's a song and there's like 25 of us and we all write a song from that title so uh there i've described it before as being kind of this rorschach test of the title (laughs) comes in and then you see what's in there and what what it becomes so i i was noticing in these like there's some of them that are like aggressively alliterative uh, just meaning the movement of the moon. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Not rhymes, but so much alliteration. <laughs> you know, going back, I didn't realize you were 15 years old when you guys started Toad the Wet Sprocket. Mm-hmm. And by 17, you guys had been signed by Columbia. That I didn't know any of that. And I was... They're 18, but 18. still, it was that's, still that's, young. That's so crazy. <laughs> yeah. Walk us through like those early days of, you know, you guys getting together, playing music. What did you sound like initially? And I also learned you had an album that I never had, your very first one. Oh, Bread and Circus. I didn't even know that album existed. So this has been a learning experience for me. But anyway, kind of walk us through those kind of formative years. Yeah, that that album is basically how we sounded. I mean, you know, we were all at San Marcos High School. Uh, They were all seniors. I was a freshman. We were in choir and theater together. So we did like, you know, Thornton Wilder's Our Town. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Todd, our guitarist, was the narrator, uh, <laughs> the, the lead in that. And then we did Oklahoma. Dean, the bass player, sang The Farmer and the Cowman Should Be Friends. You know, so <laughs> we were theater nerds in high school. And I found Same out here. that Todd, Todd lived two blocks from me. We had the same floor plan. It was the Thunderbird 2 development. Uh, he lived in a mirror image of my house. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, but he was two blocks away and he had this big green, like wood paneled station wagon that I could throw my bike in. So I was lazy and I got rides home from him and found out he could play uh, the solo from like uh, Stairway to Heaven and like licks wow. from Boston. So yeah, he had, he had all the like Boston licks down and, so I would go to his house and we started writing songs together. I would say it was my first band ever, mm-hmm. but it was actually, I had a band called Destiny that played one show at my junior high school. 
that was a three piece where I starred as Getty Lee. I played bass and sang, and we did a terrible, <laughs> terrible. Wow. Uh, if Rush were utterly incompetent eighth grade musicians, <laughs> you can just picture the main thing I remember about like our debut gig. We played at lunch in the theater, and I remember a chocolate milk uh, carton exploding on my bass. Like someone chucking oh. their milk. It wasn't great. You know, so Toad was my second band. And we went through a few early iterations of trying to find uh, a cool lead singer, you know, who wasn't a greasy. Like I was a really nerdy freshman and I was the temporary original singer. I used to play bass, actually. When Dean started playing with us, he played guitar wow. and keyboards. He had this red Kramer guitar with like the locking nut. Oh yeah, it was the eighties. Kramers were hot. Yep. And I still have actually my bait. Wait, just a second. I still have my Aria Pro Two Cardinal. Nice. Bass. Let's have a little YYZ. <laughs> I think you should play a little YYZ for us. Oh, just the <laughs> Nice. It's not that was terrible. I'm back. Uh <laughs> and he's back, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Yeah, so we we started playing around town. We got lucky because there was this club near us called Pat's Grass Shack, and uh, they were super cheap. He he didn't believe in paying ASCAP or BMI. For the audience, if you don't know, ASCAP and BMI are the PROs. They're performance rights organizations that make it so that when music is played, the songwriters and the publishers get a little bit of money. Right. So when radio plays a song, the songwriters are supposed to get paid. And if you walk into a club, you will see on the on the door a little ASCAP or BMI or CSAC sticker. Mm -hmm. And that means based on their capacity, they pay a blanket fee every month. Oh, okay. Uh to performance rights associations, so that a band can go in there and play covers or play their own songs, and the band is supposed to get that money. Uh, this guy wouldn't pay ASCAP. He's like, I don't want to pay to have music. He wasn't like even a big original music fan. Yeah, He was just a curmudgeon. And so <laughs> it was an originals only club. Like you had to play original music only. The radio really? was wow. never on. Yeah, he wouldn't play the. He couldn't play the radio legally. He couldn't have anybody. If you started playing Happy Birthday, he would pull the plug on the stage. Like no covers whatsoever. Which meant that we had to become an originals band because it was the only play, like it was the one club that we could play at. So we started writing really early. There was a guy in town, Brad Knack, who uh, had a solo project and he needed a backup band for two songs, asked us if we would back him up. And as payment, he said we could record two of our own songs. And so we recorded two songs. It was at this uh, place called Camp David. Uh, it was basically a track tome with a studio and the, oh, okay. you know, we were in set up in bedrooms and living rooms yeah. and the studio was in the garage and we recorded two songs just live in the studio. And we're like, that's fun. We should, if we do eight more, we'll have a record. <laughs> and so we spent 600 bucks recording and mixing our first record. That's nice. bread and circus. Wow. And I would have been six, 17 at that point. And so a lot of those songs were written you know, Todd and I were writing those when I was 15. Uh, yeah, it's it's weird. So our first record, we did very early, very cheaply, you know, recorded and mixed the whole thing in 48 hours. When we did Pale, we spent $6,000. Uh, 
And once again, recorded that one live in the studio, live lead vocals, everybody together, overdubbed like harmonies, and that was it. From Bread and Circus to Pale to Fear, obviously Fear is the album where you guys just broke out and experienced a lot of success. How, how do you think you guys had developed as a band in that period, and maybe in particular you as a writer from, you know, just between those three albums? Well, I mean, we toured a lot. We we put out, um, I think we put out Bread and Circus and Pale in, you know, they were both completed when we got signed. Uh, we'd already put out Bread and Circus as a cassette in Santa Barbara. We toured. It was this period of time where uh, record companies had a lot of cash on hand mm-hmm. um, because, you know, people were, there was no streaming. Uh, People were buying a cassette for the car, Mm -hmm. a CD for their brand new CD player, and still often an LP. So like, you know, people would have multiple copies of the same record instead of copying the record everywhere. Right. And so they were cash flush at the time, which meant that they could invest in developing bands. And we were part of Donnie Einer's kind of, he was making a statement that uh, Columbia was going to invest in new talent and mm. do artist development and do yeah. indie bands. And we were this California indie band that he signed us in Poydog Pondering, I think, right about the same time. Wow. So we were we were this statement about, you know, supporting and developing indie music. And, and part of our contract, honestly, we was, you know, creative control. We could hand in the record that we wanted to hand in. I mean, it's funny, even our getting signed was kind of an accident. Uh, When we were recording Pale, the producer was this guy, Marvin Etzioni. His manager, Ron Sobel, worked at ASCAP, the Performance Rights Association. You know, long story, all the names. But he gave it to this guy who worked at ASCAP named Nick Terzo, who was like 21 at the time. He later became an A&R guy. He signed like Alice in Chains and had a great A&R career. But early on, he heard our tape and he started making cassette dubs in his office and sending them to A&R people. So we started getting calls. We hadn't sent out a demo. <laughs> we like were we were a local band. And the next thing we knew, we had like eight offers from labels. Really? Um, and our plan had been like we were making the pale record, but our plan was we were going to sell it at local record stores and break up. And I was going to go to San Francisco. I'd been accepted. I was, I wanted to be a high school teacher. I was accepted into the education program at, to teach drama. Right. Is that right? I, I wanted to teach like drama and social sciences. I was really into anthropology, sociology, but, and I'd already done a couple of years. I, I started at city college in town when I was 16 and so I'd been studying music there, but I wanted to be a teacher. And so I was going to go to San Francisco. I was already looking at housing. And, and then instead we ended up, you know, flying to New York and signing with Columbia wow. and never made it to the Bay Area. We were as surprised as anyone. And I think also assumed that it wouldn't last very long. And instead it's taken up the last 35 years of my life. And thankfully so. And that's that's really interesting that you guys were able to keep creative control. Was that common back then? No, I mean, maybe. We had leverage in that way because... 
number one, we were kind of like, that was the chip we had on our shoulder. Mm-hmm. We were like, Hey man, we're real. And I mean, what's funny is we became, I think the whipping boy for the idea that major labels were destroying indie music. Like oh, we, I see. we, yeah. we actually be, you know, spin magazine, whoever else tower pulse. We were like the, the butt of the joke. The editorial essay at the beginning of every Tower Pulse magazine issue was that something about how awful we were. So what's funny about that is that when we were signing, we were very like, we're a real indie band. And, you know, Geffen wanted us to take the best songs from the first two albums and re-record them so that we could have a hit. And we're like, we don't care about hits. We're an indie band. And so, you know, we insist that you release the first two albums as is. We don't Good want for a you. Hit. Yeah. I mean, the other thing was we didn't take, you know, we did pretty small licensing fees for the mm-hmm. first two albums and we took recording advances only for Fear and Dulcinea, meaning we didn't take any money from the company to live on. Wow. We're like, we're going to earn what we, we're going to earn every cent we make. So right. wow. they paid to record the record and we're like, we want to earn it. We're young. Mm-hmm. We can we can make this happen. We're going to tour our asses off. We worked really hard and we thought it would be a fair deal that we would get paid when we earned money. And yeah. so that was how we paid for our artistic freedom. You know, the, the funny thing about that is, you know, we didn't see it was when Dulcinea, so we'd already had a platinum record mm-hmm. and then it was right after Dulcinea went gold we saw our first ever check from the record company. Really? <laughs> yeah. Heck? So is that well, because there was so much done in advance for the previous albums? It's expensive to mm-hmm. promote uh, a record and they spent a lot of money on those records. And, oh, I see. you know, you're paying back every cent they spend on that out of right. your tiny percentage of what, I mean, they were in the black for, a long time but we didn't see a cent forever that's how the accounting works on those things and the funny thing is that that's why for the coil album we're like well we should take a big advance we're a multi-platinum artist and you know we haven't been taking an advance and we haven't been getting paid so let's take it all up front and as soon as we did that what we didn't realize is if you take the money then you have to then you get in trouble if you don't do what they want. <laughs> so, oh, I see. Yeah. yeah. Um, I so you. there was that. That was a lesson learned. Well, it's interesting because I was reading some of the things that music critics were saying about you guys early on. And you, um, I know you've probably read this, but one of the early write-ups said, called you guys initially an REM clone, a little jangle in the guitars and some nice harmonies, but not much else. I'm like, ouch, <laughs> that hurts. Oh, it's about typical. That's not as bad as it got. We, Like I said, we were a punching bag for the press. I remember we hired for Dulcinea, we, we hired the, uh, the woman who, I forget her name, she had been the one who rehabilitated John Mellencamp. Oh, really? <laughs> and, you know, brought him back from John Cougar. Yeah. And I remember her crying on the phone, like when, when her period was up as our, our PR person, just saying that I didn't understand. They really, really hate you. They won't even listen to the record. I'm so sorry. Like, but I also understand, well, the thing that happened that I think did that in the press was the all I want video. I think we, we had some sympathy up until the all I want video and it looked a little too much like losing my religion. (laughs) And, 
and I think it was seen as like, oh, here's the major. They're just cranking out, you know. And it's a funny thing when you're when you're the band. It's like, oh, we got to shoot a video. Uh, okay, you're you're on tour. You get like three treatments, and you go like this one. Let's try it with this guy, and then you show up and you know, you spend a day shooting and then a week later, you know, two weeks later you get a cut and that's what, that's what it is. Yeah. We weren't really uh, savvy about thinking of how we were visually presented. I don't know. It was also that we had a hit that we were on top 40 radio it was this period where radio was really open yeah. and it wasn't okay for an indie identified college band to have a hit, right? That was the time where like, you think of Pearl Jam or Counting Crows, like disfiguring their singles or refusing to even play them. That attitude where you didn't want to be like you were on a major label, but you wanted to pretend you were above that and that you didn't actually want some success. And I think it was honestly held. It was these bands that loathed the mainstream, mm -hmm. but found themselves in the mainstream. Right. And That's it's wild. part of why it was such a competitively edgy time, right? Like this idea that if you had something real to say, you would be saying it with a snarl and a growl and a shout that saying it quietly. I think it was Elliot Smith that kind of single-handedly brought quiet despair back to indie music, but yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, way too young, man. He did. But that period was a very strange one. You wanted people to hear you, but it had to be cool people in the right yeah. way. And and we were just, we were really terrible at marketing. Um, we didn't believe in marketing. And I honestly think we used to believe like, well, R.E.M., like we would talk about R.E.M. And that was great about R.E.M. is they didn't have an image, man. People are talking about how you image yourself. They don't have one. They just show up as they are. Mm -hmm. And I think we realized years later that they did show up as they are, but also Michael Stipe is an incredibly visual oh, yeah. artist. And he really did have a great understanding of how a band should portray itself, how the art should look, how the image of the band, the look and feel of what you put out affects how people will perceive it. That's and we just thought they kind of rolled out of bed arty. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we weren't that arty. So we rolled out of bed nerdy and it was not okay to be nerdy. <laughs> I love that. That's funny. Rolled out of bed nerdy. That's me every day. But, you know, it wasn't all bad because I was reading this about Dulcinea. It says Dulcinea is Toad the Wet Sprocket's shining masterpiece. Every song is great and every song flows into the other amazingly well. It weaves musical themes and musical sounds so perfectly. It is pure sweetness to the listener's ears. That's so, awesome. What year was that written? That was when Dulcinea came out. So what was that? Really? Yeah, it was in nice. Chicago newspapers. So See, I concentrate on the negative. <laughs> That's great. But, you know, did that affect you guys back then to read some of that stuff? I mean, obviously, you, so you get the praise on one Well, hand. as you can tell, I was only looking at the criticism. I obsess on it. Right. And this is why, like, I'm sure in the interview where you heard me talking about wanting to be a teacher, like I wanted to be a teacher because I wanted to be in the arts, but I didn't want to be publicly humiliated mm, because yep. I knew it would kind of wreck my mind and my heart. And it did. And my feeling of being a fraud and of that the critics were seeing who I really was and the people mm. who liked it weren't getting it. That was really intense for me. I, I, you know, massive imposter syndrome. And so, uh, 
I was not good at seeing the critics. I was, uh, my heart was ripped open by them. So it's good to hear actually the Dulcinea thing. I need to be reminded because I know that people who heard the music and identified with us liked us. I tell a story once again, victim story though. I tell the story in my own head that people liked us, but all the people who, you know, quote unquote mattered in the press and the, in the larger world hated us. And it's not, not necessarily even a true story, right? You just quoted a good, you know, this is me talking about the danger of these stories. So they're not entirely true. I I put an undue emphasis, like the bad reviews I would obsess over. When they were scathing, they were pretty scathing. I mean, part of the thing about that time is people were so competitively edgy, right? Mm -hmm. Everything was supposed to be about being gnarly. And we weren't. We were a lot more vulnerable. And, you know, there'd be a song like, I will not take these things for granted, that in indie world was like, not cool, right? Uh, but it touched people. And Absolutely. and I think considering who we were, where we came from, we were speaking to a group of people mm-hmm. that a lot of the other popular music at that moment wasn't necessarily speaking to. Yeah. And our goal was to try to, no matter what we did, remain authentic. And I mean, you asked once again with the Fear album, I think part of that was we, we didn't know if we'd ever get a budget again, right. ever. Mm-hmm. So my favorite records you know, going away from criticism and the way I beat myself up with that uh, <laughs> stupid sob story. Making that record, you had asked earlier, I think we all wanted to try making a big record. I loved like songs from the big chair. I loved Talk Talk. I just oh, I loved Talk Talk records. I loved Peter Gabriel. I loved, I, I loved big, <laughs> you know, I, yeah big dramatic records and we wanted to make a record that had that like breadth and scope and uh you know production value to it and once again we didn't know if we'd ever get to do it again so we figured we'd throw in everything and going from two records that were essentially live in the studio it was a big difference right and when we went to dulcinea we were kind of the opposite we were like we'd made this big record but we wanted a record that sounded you know we'd had a friend out My friend Bruce was playing keyboards and keyboards for us. And we wanted a record that was five people, you know, basically a thing that a five piece could pull off live with nothing extra. We wanted to sound as big as the live show sounded, but not miss anything when we were on the, on the road for it. Fear is um, immensely cinematic. And so, I mean, if that, if your goal was to make this, this large, album i mean you guys you guys really nailed it i mean it's such an incredible album to me every song on there is so special to me uh i remember going out and buying the cd and wearing it out and and even at work you know we'd have the radio on and uh i remember one time walk on the ocean came on and we're all singing along and trying to figure out what your guy's name meant and everything and and we get to the end of the song and there's the chorus comes back on i'm like what the heck? Where did that? Where did that extra chorus come from? Oh, the radio version. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. So when you guys play it live, you don't play the extra chorus, right? You kind of go with the studio, the original take of it. 
Well, yeah, that was, you know, a radio, uh, that was just a record company consideration, right? Gotcha. Uh, when, when we play it live now, we, we come back in on the chorus so oh, people you do. can okay. sing along because it's a short song. You know, once again, it had the cold ending and it's like, nope, got to end with the chorus. So we, <laughs> we did the radio edit. That was the indie ending, you know? Yeah, it was the indie ending. And we had huge arguments with the record company about remix. We were difficult. You know, it's like, we're not going to remix it. It sounds exactly why we like, you know. But, you know, we ended up doing remixes for everything. It was fine. Michael Brower mixed it. He did a great job. But we were assholes about it. (laughs) (laughs) You were artists. You were standing up for your art. I get that. I can appreciate that. Yeah, there's standing up for your art. I think there's also understanding... The nature of the beast. And mm-hmm. I think we, because we didn't have, like, we had the ambition of making good music and we worked hard. I mean, we played more than 300 shows for the Fear Tour. We toured our wow. asses off. Wow. 18 months, 300 shows. My and goodness. we worked really hard. Mm-hmm. But I think also we were at the same time pretty entitled because. We got signed easily. Most mm-hmm. bands, it has to be the only thing you want out of life for that to happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so there was this odd, like, you know, I think the head of the company never understood that I didn't want to be a superstar. And he kept like, where's the, where's the ambition? And I didn't have the ambition. I had a really hard time with being in the spotlight mm. and that didn't make any sense to them <laughs> yeah as yeah. a front man they're like no you you should want the spotlight i could see that but you maybe you you're focused i want to make music that i love and they wanted you to be this you know whatever and so i could see where that tension would exist yeah it was it was a strange it was a strange and strained relationship yeah i can imagine well and then you know to in that album on I will not take these things for granted. To me, it's definitely one of my favorites. Did did it surprise you that that became such a a fan favorite? And and for the record, this is how slow I am. It wasn't until within the last year that I realized the song doesn't rhyme, which I <laughs> greatly appreciate because I think there are like America by Simon and Garfunkel doesn't rhyme. I love the fact that you kind of broke out of of the rhyming convention. But anyway, going back to my first question, is that did it surprise you that that song became such a fan favorite? Because it is. Everybody loves that song. Yeah, it was a hard song to get off the ground, even with the band. Like, because mm. I, you know, I'm not the greatest guitar. I remember bringing it in, and people were like, "What?" <laughs> uh, it took a lot of work to get the arrangement together and to get the the mood of it right. It's a pretty, it's all in the title, right? It's like a very, it's a pretty damn universal sentiment mm-hmm. and and an important one. You know, if you can hit something like that and hit it with the proper tone, it, you know, it resonates with people. Yeah. And so, yeah. and probably weird. I, I mean, I was a weird kid, right? So at 20 to be writing about gratitude. I love it. And not because I had it worked out. But because I think I was also realizing I was I had a lot of entitlement and it, it doesn't come easy. Gratitude is is I think a constant practice. We you know I just think you know psychologically, neurologically, we 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 normalize comfort. You know, there's this feeling that when things are good and easy, especially when they're easy, that that is the new normal, and we kind of acclimate. We we set our we set our scale for what we expect 
according to our comfort level. And the more comfortable we are, the more we think that comfort is really normal. And then we're terribly disappointed when life intervenes with that. Uh, And as the most comfortable generation of human beings ever to exist, I think we have to fight more and more uh, and even, you know, purposefully put ourselves in uncomfortable situations. You know, it's, you know, gratitude is difficult to come by. And, and, and it's not like, how can I say this? It's, I think the existence of extreme privileges to me is something I would describe as sinful meaning, Mm -hmm. for instance, living in the richest country on earth, uh, where we have increasingly high rates of poverty. We can't get, uh, you know, national medical care that so many people are desperate in a country that has so much wealth, I think is, uh, absolutely, uh, a, a moral failing at, at, at every level. Entitlement is nasty business and, and incredibly common and has to be fought against. I don't know. When we think, when we start thinking we're entitled to it, when we start thinking we deserve it or did something or have some, you know, some innate worth that means we should have more than the people around us. Mm. That's, that's when you get into some really dangerous territory. There's no reason that anyone should be starving in this country. Uh, except that we've chosen to give it all to the people on top. And you see that, you know, 52-year-old Glenn sees that now, but to be able to write a song like that at 20, that's, or whatever, how old you were when you wrote that, to not take really some simple and beautiful things for granted, for you to get that at that age. I, I know I, I wouldn't have those thoughts when I was 20. I think that's pretty remarkable. I guess I <laughs> I don't have a social media person, but Toad does. And um, our social media person was going to do a post that was this excerpt of a, a, an interview that I did for Bread and Circus. And I had to like ask her not to put it up there because I read it and I'm like, oh my God, I am so unbearably <laughs> pretentious. Like, <laughs> oh, I was just cringing reading myself. And, and you know, the person saying, wow, these are deep thoughts for a 19 year old. And I'm like, yeah, well, you know, I'm really intense. Uh, it was just so <laughs> terrible to listen to. My family, I grew up with two PhD scientists uh, my mom was deeply involved in politics uh, in town. My father, he was an optical physicist, but kind of his sideline was uh, he was really interested in, you know, non-Western spirituality. So mm-hmm. he was giving me the Tao Te Ching, taking me to, you know, Zen meditation courses, uh, you know, books by, uh, like my children's books that, you know, that I remember like Idris Shah, the Nasruddin books, which, you know, he's a Sufi writer. And so, and our, our conversation at our table was basically, and I realized this later was everything that you're not supposed to talk about at anyone else's dinner table. So it was politics and religion and philosophy. Like I don't know. It it makes sense to me that I was thinking about those things and talking about those things at that age. You know, there's a bit of that, that if I look back on it and see the way I talked about it, it was like, not, I I would, I would rate it as uh, enthusiastically pretentious for the most part uh, and not necessarily very nuanced or well-considered, but I'm also not, embarrassed that that was my 
I like that that was my subject matter, even if I was handling it kind of ham-fistedly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, later in life, and I think it's the weird thing, like thinking about grief, thinking about gratitude, thinking about what a spiritual life outside of the confines of religion and dogma is. I mean, all of all of those things are stuff that is aged well with me in terms of um, the questions I get to ask. Uh, I mean, and, and, you know, it's like there's the Rilke quote of, you know, live the questions, right? It's not about finding the answers because when you get to the meaning of life, when you get to God, when you get to what is the soul, the spirit, what is this all about? There's no answer at all. Never an answer. There's just more questions and, and like learning to really love the mystery of that and love the exploration of that uh is you know lasts it'll it'll get you through a lifetime when dulcinea came out would you consider that somewhat of a nod to your early days in theater because obviously there's a you know windmills the reference to don quixote i think dulcinea isn't that what don quixote called his uh the his love interest Do yeah it was kind of his imaginary love interest okay yeah it's been so long since i've seen man of la mancha but is, was that kind of a nod to your love for theater, kind of that, that little bit of a theme there running through that album? It wasn't Man of La Mancha. Randy had read uh, had read Don Quixote while we were on tour, so he okay. was talking about it. So I basically, our drummer, Randy, was he was the intellectual of the bunch, <laughs> uh, and he he read Don Quixote, and I, I, we were talking about just that idea of where the love interest is a fiction, right? Mm. Uh, and you know, these uh, illusions that we kind of, you know, lean towards and make real. And uh, so there was a little debate about whether it should have been Dulcinea or Rocinante, which was his horse. It was his. <laughs> <laughs> After Coil, you know, you guys called it a day as a band for a while. Kind of what led up to that? Were you, did you guys kind of feel like you'd run your course or... Hi everyone, this conversation with Glenn is so open and insightful and I did not want to leave any important portions on the editing room floor, so I split it in two. Tune in to part two, which will be released in a few weeks on April 17th, 2023. In part two, Glenn gives an open and honest account of what led to Toad's breakup and how the band was able to recalibrate dynamics and find joy in playing together again. He also talks about what the future holds for the band. We also chat about embracing grief and what we can learn from the old folks home and singing to no audience. And Glenn shares what has killed many of his songs before they were written. We also dive into Glenn's wonderful solo career and play a beautiful song from his latest solo album. You will not want to miss part two of this up close and personal chat with Glenn Phillips. So keep your bags packed and join us again as we continue this journey to the stage. <laughs>